Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with conservationists, ecologists, wildlife filmmakers, or really anyone who dedicates their lives to helping nature. I talk to them about their work in wildlife conservation, human and wildlife coexistence, community projects, and worldwide environmental issues. You can find out all about the reasoning behind the Coffee Connection on my Instagram at Coffee with Conservationists. Today, I'm featuring coffee from New Ground Coffee, a brilliant company based in Oxford. As usual, I'll be talking more about them and who they are at the end of this episode. In part one of this special marine conservation episode, I talk with Jordan Lerma, a drone pilot and marine scientist from Hawaii. We talk about the various ways drones can be used to help whale and dolphin conservation and research. Hi Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here after a quite a, a few different times rearranging and a new arrival in your family. So thank you for taking your time. Oh, uh, thanks for thanks for having me here. And uh, yeah, time time zones are also difficult. So yeah, <laughs> glad, we, glad we figured it out. So as, as we usually do, we'll start this off by getting to know you a bit. Could you tell us a bit about yourself and I guess where you first started, where your love of nature conservation first started? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm born and raised uh, in Hawaii, so a small island archipelago, the most remote island archipelago in the world, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, so born and raised on the Big Island, um, but really my my love for for nature, ironically, didn't come until I moved away from Hawaii. And it wasn't until I, you know, experienced life outside of Hawaii that I really appreciated all the nature and wildlife that Hawaii had. And it's sad. I mean, a lot of people grew up in Hawaii, spoiled and privileged. To, to be surrounded by some of the most uh, endangered and endemic species. And we don't really realize what we have until we, we move away. And, you know, I, I realized my passion for that um, in part because my sister was studying animal science at the time. Um, I was always business finance oriented and she always loved animals. And because of that, we always did aquariums. We always did, you know, marine parks. We always did zoos. And it was something I was always exposed to, but never really appreciated. So the, the fact of moving away from Hawaii and always being exposed to wildlife in, in indirect ways um, kind of just clicked at one point where I was like, oh gosh, I need, to, I need to do something else with my life. And at the time I was working as an investment banker in San Francisco and it just wasn't, wasn't I didn't have any passion for it. I, I didn't like what I was doing. So I moved back to Hawaii and that's really where I began this journey of of using technology to study whales and dolphins. And it started as a filmmaking and it moved over into science, but uh, it was really, you know, moving away from, from what I loved or, or not knowing what I loved and moving away that really, uh, really made it uh, happen for me. No, that's great. Uh, I think that's uh, maybe a common theme with a lot of people who kind of go through big career, career changes. Um, and I really want to focus on the fact that you're a self-taught marine scientist, because I know that's how we kind of, um connected online is through a discussion about that on on clubhouse um but a uh, like a lot of people especially in my position who not necessarily scientifically minded more creative people they kind of think they'll never get a chance to be a scientist with a like a degree to prove it can you explain why that's not the case yeah I, so I, I am, so it, it's tough because I'm always, I'm surrounded by people that went through the traditional way to be a marine biologist. 
And there's a lot of things that, in, that entails uh, becoming a marine biologist. There's a lot of background that you need to know. Um, whereas some of the skills that you learn along the way kind of cross over into that creative space. So flying drones, taking photos are, are scientific tools that creatives have already. It's just kind of refocusing and reorienting your skill set to be applicable to, to science. And, and really going backwards into the field, I think is, isn't a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing. And it's, it's about bringing outside perspectives, uh, thinking of problems in new ways. And I think sometimes academics get caught up in this is the way it's always done. Always, this is the way it's always, it is all, this is the way it's always been done. So we shouldn't try to do it some other way. Whereas creatives are like, we'll just try anything and see what happens. And I think that creativity in science uh, is really missing. So I, I really hope if, if anything, my story inspires someone to say, man, if I could bunch of, bunch, watch a bunch of YouTube videos and learn to be a marine biologist, if he can do it, I can do it too. And it, it's totally possible. Um, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's totally possible. And I hope to see more, more people do it, do that crossover. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a common thing that I found in my area. Because uh, I think my degree is we're in a very creative like uni. It used to be an arts college. Um, we have like my degree is the one kind of crossover. So it's kind of we do a bit. Of, we read a few scientific papers. We, we learn how to communicate science through visual work. Uh, but I think a lot of people right at the beginning of term, I kind of spoke to them and I was like, oh, why did you pick, you know, marine and natural history photography? And they were like, well, I love animals, but I'm not clever enough to be a scientist or I'm not, you know, I'm, and that's a that's a thing I think in, I don't know about the US, but definitely in the UK, there's all that, you know, you need to get biology and chemistry, GCSE, and then A-level, and then, you know, you need to do a degree and it's just all the very traditional routes. Yeah, and I, think I think, you know, one of the things, like, like you mentioned, the difference between the UK and the US, I mean, I think in the UK, in the US, we're a bit spoiled and we have that freedom and privilege to say, hey, we can do anything we want because, you know, that's the American mentality, right? <laughs> um, we, we really just don't really follow rules. And I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I definitely see that in the UK, a lot of people, at least on, on social media, display their degrees, their, their titles on their bios a lot more than in the US where, you know, I don't say I have a Bachelor of Science in Economics on my, my bio. It's just like I'm a marine scientist because I've touched a shark once. I think is what my bio says right now. And it's something like <laughs> I don't mean to be a rebel all the time, but I, I, I think our actions in our work should define us, not our titles. And I think we're slowly seeing that transition in many, many corporate settings like Google and a lot of the tech startups, um, even in aerospace, NASA, SpaceX, uh, ULA, are hiring people with, with high school degrees, but have a comprehensive GitHub page with a bunch of code that they know how to write and use. So I, I think our skills and our projects should define our, our status and our, our ability to do things, not, hey, I did five years of school and I have a PhD now. That, that means nothing to me unless there's something to prove um, that you can actually do something applicable to what we're studying. Yeah, no, that's really important. And actually, now you say it, I kind of realized that yeah, most of the UK-based scientists that I see uh, like have that in their bio. They have like, you know, environmental science degrees or zoology or something like that. Um, it's definitely a common theme, and I'm just thinking that maybe I should take that out of mine. No, uh, no, it's, no, it's quite no, funny. I don't want to discourage you from um, that. Rightfully so. I mean, people work really hard to get degrees, 
Mm. I'm just saying that academia isn't for everyone. And just because you don't grow up doing academia doesn't mean you can't do useful science. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I definitely see that. So, I mean, this is kind of more visual related than science, but a few years back, you had this experience that I've been reading about. I actually made it into Time magazine, um, which was pretty crazy. Like uh, you had, was it four humpback whales surfacing right next to your paddleboard? Um, I guess this, uh, some of the subject matter we might touch in this podcast is quite negative. So I want to keep it positive right at the start, like just to brighten people's days. Can you describe how you felt when these like massive giants of the ocean kind of just was so close. Yeah, I, I, I really owe my where I am in my career because of that, that clip. And it was the third or fourth time I filmed whales with the drone. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like I, I kind of knew how to fly a drone. I stayed really, really high on the water just because I didn't want to crash. Um, but just, just tracking a, a paddleboarder out there and these four whales decided to pop up right underneath it. And that clip went viral. Um, and it led to me having a now this following of people listening to what I have to say about whales and dolphins. And really, I, I, I credit Instagram for, for me getting my job. I mean, I, I pitched uh, when I first met my boss and I pitched him on why I should, why he should let me come on the project to volunteer. I said, hey, I have this following on Instagram. And he, I think to him, it appealed like, hey, this kid has an audience with whales and dolphins that we can exploit. Um, but you know, it was, it was incredible. I remember sitting on the beach, just my hands were shaking. It was like, oh my gosh, is that whale going to breach under the paddleboard? Like, do I have to call a lifeguard or, or the Coast Guard or what's going to happen? But it's amazing the dexterity that, that whales have to just, just be playful or, or whatever behavior. I, 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 it's just amazing to watch that. And it really hooked me to, to wanting to film more. And I, I've never filmed anything quite as spectacular as that. I, I keep hoping I will. And it keeps me going, but it was, uh, you know, it was the third or fourth time I was out there and it's, it's, uh, it, it created that addiction for me to, to keep filming wildlife. I'll, I'll definitely, um, be linking that clip in the description because for anyone who wants to watch it, it is amazing. It's, um, I just can't imagine that the experience of that, that paddleboarder had and yeah, getting out there and just suddenly yeah. these massive creatures just, just the fact that it was him and he had no idea it was there until they were like past him <laughs> it's amazing these these large animals are just hiding underneath you and you have no idea it's just it's, it's incredible yeah for sure and i mean you've mentioned drones a lot because that's kind of your thing and i can see you've got a really cool one in the background oh, yeah. actually <laughs> um but i was wondering kind of a lot of people know what drones are there are many purposes they've got a lot of different purposes um high quality drones are becoming more and more commercially available um you know we can get them reasonably inexpensive here with you know really good technology to to take photo and video um all of your work really kind of focuses on cetaceans, uh, so that's whales and dolphins. I know there's a huge, this kind of a hugely complex subject, you could probably talk about it for hours, <laughs> but could you kind of break down why and how drones are being used to help cetacean conservation? Yeah, so that the really cool part is not only can we use drones to, to take high quality video and, and images um, that we use for, for analyzing body condition, um, we look at the the girth compared to the uh, the length, length and width of the animal. 
and we can see if populations are growing and shrinking if we see a lot of adults compared to a lot of juveniles or a lot of um, newborn calves. So we can, we, can, we can learn a lot just from uh, video and, and photos. Um, but more so, drones are a good option for non-invasive sampling. And in the past, when you wanted a breath sample from a whale, you had to approach it pretty rapidly with a boat and hope that it surfaced right next to the boat, uh, at the same time holding a petri dish attached to a, a long pole over the blowhole. And what that does is it really limits the amount of animals you can sample. One, they have to be approachable. Not all animals are approachable. And, and two, maybe the animals that are, are, are sick or emaciated that should be sampled aren't getting sampled because they tend to avoid boats more. Um, so what drones let us do is pick and choose which animals we want to sample. And one that helps increase the fidelity of the data we're getting back. You know, we're, we're sampling the animals. We can, we can properly sample individuals based on our, 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 our research regimes um, to coincide with other things that we've done, like we've taken biopsy samples, we've taken fecal samples, uh, we've put out satellite tags, we have, you know, good quality images of one individual, we, we, can, we can do a full-on health analysis from, from targeting that animal with the drone, which might be really, really difficult or really expensive to do if we're doing it with just a boat. So it opens up a lot of uh, avenues for, for increasing research. And I have the drone out uh, right here. We're getting ready for a project uh, next month working with Southern resident killer whales um, and transient killer whales looking to uh, improve breath sampling techniques um, with the drone. So it's, it's, a, it's a useful tool. And I think when used properly um, is a valuable asset for, for, for scientists and researchers. You know, we're also seeing a lot of folks flying uh, drones over wildlife who aren't scientists, but, you know, like we talked about before, they, they, that, those images are still very useful. You know, we can still learn a lot about animals from that perspective of the drone. So we've had uh, citizen scientists, is what I call them, um, contribute these photos and we, 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 can, we add them to our data set um, to kind of supplement what we, what we do in our, our field projects. So just because scientists, non-scientists are using drones, sometimes can be a bad thing, but uh, when, when done with the right reasons and, and they send us and send people who know what they're doing, the images, um, they can be very useful. Yeah, that sounds great. I think it's really, I'm really glad you mentioned Southern resident killer whales as well, because I've had somebody on the podcast before uh, talk about wild orcas and then uh, someone talking about captive orcas. So it's really good to get various perspectives on on this really endangered species. Um, yeah, and I, I will add to that. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of issues related to captivity, and I, I won't go into it uh, as much as uh, probably the the past guest you had talking about it. Um, but we do work closely with SeaWorld. I mean, th just because captive animal captive animals can provide a lot of insight, and for for breath sampling specifically for this purpose. You know, they're able to wipe off the, the animal's blowhole, so there's no contaminants. Whatever liquids in, in the lungs, um, they can measure. And it's really, it, it helps us dial in our, our research techniques to sampling wild animals and, and trying, to, trying to reduce contaminants because of seawater contamination and, and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of value that comes out of captivity that I don't think people realize. They only see the negative sides. Um, and it's a very complicated issue. Um, but just wanted to highlight, you know, one, one small positive that comes out of the research and, and the ability to work together to, to try and answer these questions. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'm definitely in favor of 
looking at both sides of any issue. Um, I've had people, you know, I'm not a massive fan of some some zoos, for example. I know mm-hmm. some zoos uh, operate under really unethical practices, but I've made sure to to have someone on here from an, a really accredited ethical zoo and talk about that kind of thing. Nice. And so it's really good to hear your that that small positive in quite a yeah, as you said, very complex issue. <laughs> um, You've also recorded uh, an, a really cool clip that I saw of a false killer whale attacking a mahi-mahi. Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Yep. Um, so common dolphin fish, and that's using drones as well. Do drones currently play kind of a big role in non-invasive techniques to look at behavior as well as kind of um, biology? Yeah. So one really cool thing, we just we just submitted this manuscript about a month ago, and I think we had some minor revisions and it's going to get resubmitted very soon. Um, but we're using drones to study uh, dwarf sperm whales. Um, so Koji Asima are pretty much everything we know about the species comes from strandings or dead animals. Very few studies have ever uh, looked at live animals. And off of the big Island, there's a, a resident community of Koji Asima and they're very difficult to approach and they tend to disappear very quickly. So we have photos, we, we, we don't have video um, before using drones, we don't have photo, we had photos, no video. Um, and all we really had was group size and some uh, evidence of scarring fisheries interactions and shark bites. And for the first time in November or, or October, end of October in 2019, we got the drone over Koji Asima and recorded uh, 14 or 15 minutes of video footage, behavioral footage, and we were able to look at respiratory rate. How, how often are they breathing? You know, one of, the interesting thing, one, of the, one of the interesting things we found is that when they surface, they kind of do this 180 degree spin. And we think it's because they're looking for sharks, they're looking for predators at the surface. And, you know, there's a lot of really cool stuff that we can learn from just looking at drone video, especially with species that are rarely seen. Um, you know, the predation stuff with, with false killer whales and mahi-mahi are awesome, and they help us get you know, tons of engagement and, pe- and get people excited. Um, but I think for the, the lesser known species like Kojia Saima or, or even Kojia breviceps, my, my goal is to get behavioral video of Kojia breviceps, which is a pygmy sperm whale. Um, you know, some of these species that people never see or never will see just because they're so elusive um, will be really yeah. cool and currently and, and totally possible because of drones. I mean, I'm definitely as far as it is possible to get away from being a whale scientist, but I just, I didn't, uh, as a kind of member, a naive member of the general public, I didn't even know that those two species existed. I just thought it was kind of one, just, just a sperm whale and that mm-hmm. was it. So it's really interesting to, to hear about that and looking forward to kind of yeah, seeing how they can be used in the future. Thanks again to Jordan for taking the time to speak to me today. All the links to his social media will be in the description down below. So in today's episode, we're featuring coffee from Newground Coffee. Apart from having great ethical and sustainable credentials, the thing I loved about Newground is they are a certified social enterprise. They believe in second chances, and so they train ex-prisoners to give them a new lease of life and stop the cycle of reoffending. Folks who've been in prison are more likely to reoffend when they don't have proper jobs, training, living wage security, and a supportive community, and they can find all of this when working at Newground. You can find out more about the details of this particular coffee, which came from Rwanda, through the link in the episode description. 
If you feel like you've learned anything of value from the podcast, please consider supporting me through a one-off donation on Ko-fi. This means I can continue to buy ethically sourced coffee to feature on the podcast, I can expand my storytelling toolkit, and I can support local and indigenous coffee growing companies and any contributors to the podcast. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on Spotify, Anchor, Google and Apple Podcasts and a few more places. So tune in tomorrow for part two of this episode where I'll be talking to Jordan again all about the new Netflix documentary Sea Spiracy. As ever, thank you all so much for listening. I've been your host, George Steedman jones and this is the Coffee with Conservationists podcast.